Hello everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents. I'm your host for the dialogue series on restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond. And this archive is from December 15th, 2011, and it features James O.D., who is an internationally renowned peace builder, former Amnesty International Director, Washington, D.C., former president of IONS and extended faculty, and an advisory council to the Peace Alliance, among many other things. Please visit James O.D.'s website at www.jamesod.com and enjoy this dive into international models of restorative justice, as well as the peace building movement. We had a phenomenal dialogue with him yesterday and look forward to sharing more with you all during this series. Thank you. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome everyone. My name is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm the director of Molly Rowan Presents and the host for this ongoing dialogue series that's focused on restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond. The purpose of this series is to illuminate, inspire, educate, and connect while harnessing the power of our attention on solutions to some of our country's and our world's most critical issues. The format of tonight's call is um, one hour in length, and we'll be find, uh, fielding questions at about the half hour and towards the closing 10 minutes or so. Tonight's focal points are um, going to be international models of restorative justice and the peace movement, and of course those likely will intersect. So tonight, tonight's guest, as many of you may know, um, he's a very special guest and is someone I have worked with for a good portion of the past eight years, and whom I believe to be one of the most profound examples of Satyagraha or Love in Action on the planet, James O.D. James is deeply revered and respected by all who meet and interact with him and is praised by colleagues such as Arun Gandhi and Jean Houston as being one of the most humble yet potent peace builders of our times. James has devoted his life and service to the collective good, the collective healing, and blends a brilliant and eloquent mind with a profoundly deep heart he sets an instant field whether he's in person or on conferences such as these. It's a field that is the essence of peace. James has served as director of Amnesty International Washington, D.C. He is extended faculty and past president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's on the advisory council to the Peace Alliance. And he has an international student body from over 25 countries worldwide who have taken part in both the Peace Ambassador Training Series hosted by the Shift Network and also his small group, Peace, Healing, Leadership, and Creative Emergence Intensives, which provide powerful and direct path um, for over five days with James and a group of other, eight other emergent leaders. James also is doing work with evolutionary lawyers and is co-facilitating an intensive in February with ABA best-selling author of Lawyers as Peacemakers, J. Kim Wright. James is an author of the book Creative Stress, A Path for Evolving Souls, 
Living Through Personal and Planetary Upheaval, which was pu published last year. You can find him narrating uh, an audio version of Creative Stress in his lyrical style, and that's available for download at his website, along with news, blog posts, and events at jamesod.com. And just a quick note that this and every call is audio recorded, so I post the archives at mollyrowanpresents.com. So without further ado, thank you so much for being here, James. Tremendous commitment to restorative justice and social healing on the planet. And what a privilege it is to be on this series in between people like Azim Hamisa and uh, coming up soon, Ari Ariatni from Sri Lanka. So I think you are really bringing together voices that can speak powerfully about justice and truth but also how to restore justice and heal societies. And those concepts of justice and healing have been divorced. Justice has been held captive by the punitive gods, the punishment lords, the prophet lords, the throw them and hide them away societal strategies that end up being more and more destructive. My own path to this has really been through human rights work, frontline human rights work, both living in places of civil conflict and war and massacres and, and working on behalf of torture victims and trying to improve international law, attending such things as the World Conference on Human Rights. It was really in that struggle for human rights and decency and dignity in the world that I began to feel a deeper quest, which was how do we look at the source of these problems? How do we look at healing strategies that go further than punishment strategies? So even some of the best human rights organizations tend to focus on prosecution of the offenders as the evidence, as the way forward that a government is serious about ending human rights violations. We know a new way is emerging. We know that a new story is emerging. We know that we can begin to look at justice and see in her face the contours of healing and compassion and kindness. And something deeper, too, which is the integration of our best knowledge. So one of the things that becomes clear for me in my own journey is that if you look at the justice system, it really does not integrate what we know. It, it stays almost uh, anachronistic in the past in relationship to the contemporary body of knowledge. So we know if you look at a prison, it doesn't in any way integrate what we know in mind-body health. And this science of mind-body health, which really started flowering in the 1970s, is now a mature science. And we know that it needs to be applied in, in, in very fundamental ways for anybody to be healthy. And yet our prison system and our justice system ignore this 
prison system and justice system tends to ignore basic psychology. Certainly it ignores positive psychology. And so we are part of a movement that says, let's integrate the best of what we know to create the most peaceful societies because our ultimate goal is the creation of cultures of peace. And so sometimes people will say to me, well, what what is really the essence of restorative justice? What is it? Well, I say the essence of it is face-to-face. It is not this anonymity of the current system where the victim and the perpetrator never meet. There's no exchange of words between them. It's a ritualized courtroom drama, and then the perpetrator is locked away, and the victim is supposed to feel good. Well, you know, study after study after study shows that the victim does not feel good, that the basic justice system doesn't work for anybody. It it sends people away to often long prison terms in conditions that are criminopathic, that is, they're creating criminals. If somebody goes in with a minor offense and comes out, you know, potentially having been raped, molested, beaten up, uh, introduced to all kinds of criminal networks. So we say at the beginning of restorative justice that it's about healing the harm to the victim. It's about a redemptive and clearing process for the victim. So the victim feels that somehow they've gone through a process where having been violated in some ways, something is restored, some healing is is restored, some safety is you know is restored. And again, study after study confirms that uh, victims who have gone through a restorative justice approach feel quite a degree of satisfaction with the process. So the process is really self-evident in that sense. Again, restorative justice is about holding the offender accountable, but also allowing for transformation of the offender. That's essential in the process. If you say to someone, you are an offender and you always will be, and this is your record and we're going to dump you, then what will you expect out of that process? So we must get sophisticated enough to see how do we hold the offender accountable, which means they owe something. They owe behaviors to those they have victimized. They need to give back in some way. And in that process of giving back, they need to heal and become uh, citizens who will not commit crimes again. And the third uh, element of restorative justice is that it really involves the community, that it says, wait a minute, these things don't happen in complete isolation. They are community issues, and the community must participate in the solution. So that's the basic framing uh, of restorative justice. And I would like to contribute to these wonderful conversations, Molly, by uh, just giving some examples from different cultural settings that I've experienced. 
And I'll, I'll really begin with the Native American process. And I've been in dialogue with not only Native American elders over the years, but doing work on reservations and uh, inviting into social healing dialogue various Native elders, including uh, practitioners of Native American law. It was in one of those dialogues that one of the Native American lawyers told me about a, a process because you know it, it contains all those elements that I was talking about, face-to-face, -face, offender accountability, offender transformation, and involving the community. In this particular case, there was an older lady, grandmother in the community, whose house was broken into by some youths, and they trashed her house. And uh, But they didn't know that she was there. They thought she had gone out. And in fact, she was hiding in terror for her life behind a curtain. And uh, fortunately, they didn't discover and having done the damage that they did and probably not finding any money, they left. But as they left, she was able to peek out and see who it was. So she named them, and a, a Native American trial was uh, convened. And in the convening, the community is brought together, the neighbors of the children, their immediate family, their extended relatives, others involved in community process. And in this case, the grandmother begins the trial by going to the uncle, saying, uncle who is a special, in this particular native tradition, has a specific role um, relationship to the perpetrators each in each case each uncle is then addressed and then the parents are addressed and the close all of the close relatives uncle were you doing your your job here were you looking out for these kids were you teaching them what they need to be teached were you initiating them into the skills and traditions of our tribe because something's gone wrong here. And again, going to family and brother and sister and mother, were you looking out? Were you taking care? What was going on in this family and in the teachings that were supposed to happen? Because some, there's a breakdown in our process here. And then on to the neighbors. Neighbors, were you looking out for these kids? What, were you, what was your role? Were you being watchful and attentive? And, and noticing any signs that would suggest that there was a problem. And uh, all around the circle of those convened, the grandmother comes, and then she comes to the two youths, and she says to them, young men, you know, I want to ask you, did I do something? Did I offend you in some way? Did I hurt you? What would have caused you to come into my house and to have done these things to me? And uh, so you see the process. You have that face-to-face -face element. You get a chance as the victim to address not only the community but those who harmed you. Why did you do this? What was your situation? 
and finally when everybody's answered and and been heard then there is the accountability aspect and in this case the grandmother says well young man you know you're going to come and for the next several months every weekend you'll be working at my house and you will be repairing the damage in fact she said i want more than just that because i been thinking I really needed some nice kitchen cabinets and so you're going to help me get those kitchen cabinets and install them and we're going to end this story with with my feeling really happy that I've got actually a good deal here I've got a better house and you're going to feel more responsible and more committed to this community so you see there what a glorious example of restorative justice in the native tradition and that power of including everyone in the process recently i was in micronesia uh, working with a whole number of different uh, ngos there and uh, i had a conversation with a man from yap you know i was actually the meetings were in guam but Micronesia, you have those islands of Yap and Saipan and Guam and so forth. And he was telling me that in Yap, similar to the native tradition, but even more so, is the sense of group responsibility and connectedness. So he gave me the example of a young man, his friend who had been drinking and they went out and in their car and uh, the car crashed into uh, another car and there was I believe either a serious wounding or a fatality and uh, the driver was sent to prison and his friend's family went to the driver's family and apologized that he had been singled out as responsible because the young men were there together and they'd been drinking together. What an incredible in, in, in examination of, of justice process that is when you think of a family actually feeling their connection so deeply that they would apologize in that way. He was saying that in Yap, Restorative justice is really about community process. So if somebody in the community, in one community, acts or misbehaves in a certain way, then there is a conversation that if this affects another community or is a perpetration against a member of another community, then the community decides what is the accountability of that entire community for what happened. The community as a whole has to not only apologize, but demonstrate that they are accountable and that they're going to restore the balance together. So again, an even greater sense of we're not isolated beings, you know, we behave in the way we do because of family circumstance, because community circumstance. And there's a rich sense of ownership of uh, situations that get out of balance. 
and I have done some work in Israel-Palestine. Most recently, last year, I met with uh, Palestinians who were trying to restore the Bedouin system, which is known as Sulha. Sulha, there really isn't a direct translation in English. It's close, the word is close to meaning forgiveness but it's also close to restoring the balance. And uh, examples of how sulha works is that, let's say, you have a perpetrator and a victim. And uh, what happens in the sulha process is that the perpetrator's family must act once the perpetration or crime has been committed, recognizing that a member of their family or their clan network has committed a crime. And their immediate responsibility is to convene some elders in the process, people who are respected in the community. doesn't always mean the oldest, but, but those who are really authentically respected by the community. And that uh, that Sulha community leadership process then goes to the victim's family and says, we have been contacted by the perpetrator's family, and uh, they have asked us to create the Sulha process with you. Will you please accept a process of reconciliation and negotiation Will you please tell us what it would take to, for you to feel that justice is done, that the situation can be restored? And what emerges in this process is a dance of negotiation and conversation between the victims and the perpetrators, but initially through the respected elders, and this can go on for months, and uh, both in terms of is there real repentance here? Has you know can this be restored? Sometimes it's a financial issue. How much are, are the other side willing to pay? Um, but again, as you can see, it's face to face. It's about community involvement. And it's about changing the story so that it's restored, so the harm that is felt by the victim's family. So the victim's family is very powerful in the Sulha process because they, they are asked, they are besieged, will you accept this process? And then when finally the understandings have been reached and the agreements have been reached, the families meet for a party for a celebration, for a ritual dinner. There, this is actually where we get the white flag from, believe it or not. It comes from this Bedouin process. The white flag is raised. Now the, the enmity has been purified. Now we eat together. We drink together. We restore the balance. We restore the harmony because we've done the work that's necessary. 
then I, I did want to also share with you uh, my own experience in Rwanda of the process there, which is called gachacha. And gachacha is a process that uh, it really means on the grass. That's what the word means. And it was the traditional justice process at the village level in Rwanda. And after the genocide, where 800,000 people were killed and where there was mass involvement in those killings because the government had stirred up this enmity and had told the Hutu, go kill Tutsis. You know, it's your, your, your responsibility. You're only loyal if you go out and kill the cockroaches, as they call them. So there were people, many, many people stirred up to commit these crimes. And there were, of course, then after the genocide and the arrival of Paul Kagame and the forces that, that ousted the genocidal government, there was a period in which they arrested many people who were accused of crimes. And uh, the international community, which had abandoned Rwanda in the lead-up to the genocide, was all too eager to come in and say, well, now use what you've been taught about the best justice system in the world. You know, we'll come in as the international tribunal system and try those responsible. And quickly, the Rwandan government said, well, you're... It seems it's going to cost about a million dollars per person if we take everybody through the international tribunal. So they said this is absurd and it won't it won't really heal the country. It will take so long and be so expensive. And so they reinstituted the gachacha. They trained people and they sort of upgraded the village system. And when I was in Rwanda, I was one of those few foreigners who was invited by the government to observe a gachacha trial, they're pretty much winding it up now, uh, 15 years after the genocide. But the principles of the gachacha are restorative. They are very much about how the whole community comes together, originally sitting literally on the grass, but coming together appointing from their community the respected elders who become five elders who become the or respected persons who become the judges in the Kachacha trial. And then every voice in the community is permitted. Everyone is allowed to speak. Everyone is allowed to go back and ask questions. So, you know, completely alien in a Western court, the sense that everybody's got the right to speak and ask questions. Um, after all, what are lawyers paid for? <laughs> um, but in this process, as long as it is needed, people in the community will go back and say, but you know, in the case that I observed, you were at the corner at 5 o'clock. You were there 
with a group of men with machetes. The victim was brought to that corner. And then, you know, where were you? Where did you go after 5 o'clock? And so it's that really tremendously intimate sense of connectivity with the justice process and the right for everyone to explore what it means to participate in the truth. And so 80,000 people have been processed in the Rwandan gachacha process. And uh, sometimes when they feel that the person who is presumed guilty party is not cooperating and is not telling the truth, they are really not satisfied that they have gotten to the bottom of things, then they will send that person back to the regular justice system in Rwanda and say, you know, you'll have to, to use your process. But as I said, 80,000 people have gone through this process. So often, once the truth has been established, what people are looking for is what is the relationship of the perpetrator to the truth? And uh, in the case, not in the case that I heard, but in cases I heard about from Gachacha attendees, was you know so often that sense of an average person just feeling totally confused and lost and betrayed by their government and told by their government, go out and kill your neighbors. It was almost in some cases that they thought that they were doing the right thing for their country by doing this. And once it was over, they were overwhelmed with guilt. And, and that becomes obvious when a whole community sits there. And in such cases, they'll say, well, maybe now what you need to do is go to the brick factory and uh, help build you know, the house that was torn down by you and your marauding friends. So I, I was tremendously impressed in Rwanda because just 15 years after the genocide, there is a tremendous sense of healing in the country where almost 60% of people now identify as Rwandan first and... Tutsi or Hutu second. In other words, they've done a remarkable job at moving the story forward. And you do that by by connecting up communities into the process so that everybody feels responsible. So finally, I would just say uh, we're, we're learning so much in relationship to justice and healing. We have a tremendous benchmark in South Africa uh, in the truth reconciliation process, where again, there was an amnesty process for certain of the perpetrators who came forward, who apologized, who gave full information on their crimes and, and the structural reality behind them and the chain of command so that people could dismantle the structure that had created these crimes. We cannot have truth or reconciliation, or the broader peace without this intention to restore, to heal, to recreate a social order that involves 
deep community participation. Maybe at this point then I'll take a rest here, Molly, and check in with you. Thank you, James. Um, it's always so wonderful to hear your your path and your insights. <clears throat> and um, as you know, one of the things that I, I find to be so important about this work and one of my personal traits is how much I love to to really get down to the root of uh, what's the root cause and core and and how do we uncover the layers. And I'm wondering, um, well first of all let me just make a note. Um, we're going to field some questions here in just a moment from our circle tonight. So go ahead and start pressing one on your keypad. But I'm going to open out our question session here with, with uh, a root cause question for you, James. Um, I wondered if you could just give us a little insight into what you think the root, uh, what is at the root of transforming our punitive system to a restorative or perhaps even unitive system. And of course, we, we don't have to look very far to see very severe evidence of profit being one of perhaps those major barriers. But I'd love to hear from you personally. What, what do you think is at the root of the transformation? I think at the root is, is this world view of separation, a world view that leaves that there is a deep separation between mind and matter, between the good and the bad. And it's a kind of sometimes referred to as a mechanistic worldview that is separative. What we know from contemporary science and the spiritual traditions and the coming together of those forms of knowledge is that we're all co connected. It is an illusion. You know what Einstein referred to as an optical delusion of consciousness that we are separate and we can throw people away or punish them and send them off because we're actually they're a part of the whole body of humanity, and our work is to heal that body of humanity. So I think the root is right there in worldview beliefs and attitudes that says, I'm different, I'm separate, I'm above, others are below. And the reframing of that is really essence of, I think, the work to create cultures of peace, cultures of connectivity. We know this also from systems thinking, that parts and the whole are fundamentally connected. Often the part doesn't see its relationship to the whole, and sometimes doesn't see its relationship to the other part. But that's why people involved in restorative justice and in the larger peace paradigms are the ones to try to give you the map of how the whole is connected so that we can say, you know, if you continue in this way, you will only exacerbate the problem. That's what we're seeing in systems where punishment orientation is very heavy. It doesn't work. It not only costs more money, it creates more criminals, it creates more injury and more wounding. And so the another aspect of that root is the root problem is then the 
the wounding itself gets transferred. It doesn't get resolved. And so we're, as holistic practitioners, as whole mind, body, whole systems practitioners, we say, let's, let's deal with the woundedness in our beliefs and in the trauma that is transferred from generation to generation so that we can, in fact, upgrade the entire system and heal it. Mm. I love that, and it, it reminds me of, um, you often say something to the effect of, the bullet stops here. And then, of course, the beautiful story of Frances McEnany and her being caught in the crossfire. And um, you also mention in your book, Creative Stress, that um, that energy will it will keep knocking and it will continue to take form until it's addressed. Is that not true? Yes. Um, you know, I'm just completing another book called Cultivating Peace, which will uh, be published next May. But uh, I really try to address those issues around the fundamental both wounding and healing process but also what I deal with somewhat in creative stress and then translate into the peace paradigm in cultivating peace is that the emerging peacemaker really needs to become an energy master. We, it is now that time in evolutionary time where human beings need to master energy work at the next level of sophistication because, as I point out in creative stress, it gets blocked, it gets stuck. Energy is, is, is raw and can move from raw to refined and subtle. And that is our work to take the energy that comes at us, not deflect it, not repress it, not push it back in others' faces, but actually transform it in our own energy being and then look at the, all of the societal processes that take energy and transform it into subtle modalities of being, subtle systems of reconciliation, subtle education systems. And that's the excitement, really, of the evolutionary time we live in, that people are moving into the beginning, and in some cases the advanced work, of subtle energy transformation. Let's go ahead and, and take a question from the circle here. How about um, Catherine F. Go ahead, Catherine F. Sadoga, I believe. That's me. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Um, so I come from um, First Nations background, even though I learned my traditions later in life. but. Um, my question actually is about the Occupy movement um, that's been exploring shared power um, and has developed systems within it in itself. And as it's grown, many of the cities are struggling with conflict. And how do they create their own restorative justice system, um, uh, that, a system that's their own? And I guess part of the question is that you've shared how many cultures um, have many options that um, are, 
our traditions and their cultures. And I'm wondering whether is Occupy a new culture in its own right? And therefore, would they need to start from scratch? Or what would you recommend for them creating a restorative justice system? You know, I think there are two elements with Occupy. One is this bold attempt to be inclusive <coughs> and to create consensus process. And that's really cutting edge work uh, at some level, or it's the it's the great work. It's like the the work of peacemaker himself in the Native American tradition, which was to bring together, you know, to find the new structures that could bring people together in confederations and in in, in peace process. And and that we're still evolving towards how do we build consensus and inclusion? And it's it's tough work because we're learning it, and sometimes we learn it, you know, less skillfully than at other times. So I, I really commend the Occupy movement for trying to be inclusive and to build that consensus process. And yes, it absolutely needs when conflict arises. You see, we say in conflict work or conflict resolution work. Conflict is neither good nor bad. It exists. Conflict exists in the universe. So therefore, it's not about conflict being wrong. It's about how do we approach conflict. And we're, the, the way we gestate the conflict and resolve is important. We also say there's a principle that's very important in international peace work, which, as Molly said, I, I teach some courses on that online and so on, is the notion that you really are not trying in conflict to negotiate a compromise. That's, a compromise is generally a failure. When, when two people in a conflict end up with a compromise, they go, oh, I got that, and he got that, and is what you want is actually the resolution at a higher level of integration. You want to create a higher ground that people reach to and they say, wow, this is a higher level of solution rather than you know, a kind of fix-it mentality. I do think that there is something structurally problematic in the Occupy movement in that in restorative justice terms, it really is not at the moment very dialogic with the offender. If the offender is Wall Street, if the offender uh, you know, is the 1% who are, who are exploitative or is the... Is the offender is the system that is perpetuating an imbalance, then it's not enough to oppose that because that you're going to stay in an old paradigm of us versus them. They're the problem. We're on the right side. They're the bad guys. They created this system. We've got to oppose them. We have to propose dialogue. We have to mediate together. We have to negotiate solutions. We have to create solutions. And so 
It is a very complex moment. I love the fact that Time magazine, <laughs> of all things, has put you know, uh, the person of the year, the protester, and they're saying the protester, not just, of course, in the U.S., but all over, in Syria, in Libya, in Egypt, in Tunis, in Yemen, in Bahrain, and in Chile, and in Puerto Rico, and it goes on. This 2011, for those of you who wanted to feel a shift towards 2012, 2011 should have been a very good warm-up because the planet has been on the move. Sometimes a great deal is achieved by people getting into the streets in mass number and sometimes staying there until they're heard. But then comes this moment when what is it you're proposing and how are you part of that solution? So anyway, that's some something of an answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. So James, it always goes so quickly with you. Um, we're already at the last quarter of our call tonight, and I'd really love to. Um, for for those of you, please hold your questions, and if you do want to put your question into the hat towards the end of the call, I'll open it up again. So you can press one at any time to add your name into that field. And um, so James, if you could please just uh, go in and into the the range of, of the peace movement, the global peace movement, and, and your view of it, please. Yes, I've alluded a little to that, and the Cultivating Peace book is really about the new peace movement, the emerging peace movement, the rising of consciousness across the planet. What we're seeing in those examples of people on the move is that there's a new sense of collective power. There's a new sense of we. There's a lack of interest, a very clear message coming from so-called average human beings that they will not accept domination and that they intend to participate and have ownership, collective ownership of the societies they live in. So. That in itself takes us out of that old polarity of the peace movement is the anti-war movement. Well, as long as it stayed as the anti-war movement, then it was caught in that polarity. And, and believe you me, the manipulators of power know very well how to manage that polarity. They, they you know, say, oh, those are the wild opposition, those are the you know, they hold, if you like, the, the polarity because it's convenient. But once you transcend that polarity, the peace movement becomes, you know, I, my image of it is that we're no longer shouting at the gates. You know, we've climbed the walls, we've breached the walls, we're inside the belly of the beast, we're transforming within, we're school teachers who are subversive in the very best sense of teaching the whole person, allowing for emotional and social intelligence and spiritual reality to enter into the educational system. We're holistic doctors and nurses. We're even holistic lawyers. You mentioned Kim Wright and that whole movement within the law to say, you know, the polarization of law really serves no one and it makes lawyers themselves very sick. So healing and wholeness in the law. We could go on. There is that sense that 
the emerging peace movement is about the integral movement. It's about synchronizing the inner world and the outer world. It's not saying I I I predispose and 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 prioritize the inner life and my meditative life over what happens in the world. Or the opposite, I'm an activist and what's most important is to change everything on the outside and it doesn't really matter if I walk my talk. Now the peace movement is saying synchronizing the inner and the outer is the name of the game. This is how we create peace. And it is totally ambitious, which is I, which I love, because it resurrects my sense of idealism. And, I, you know, my sense that the cynics are just about to lose their grip with that sense of new idealism that individual people can make a difference when they do, when they synchronize in their own life inner reality and outer reality. As the Dalai Lama himself says, it is not enough to be compassionate. One must act. Hmm. So do you suppose that we're at the very point where we perhaps have unlocked the uh, perhaps the cone, the koan of, uh, of what Gandhi had said is uh, quite the quite popular phrase, but nonetheless a very powerful phrase of being the change. Right, that is the uh, the organizing principle of emerging peace movement. It is cannot promote the change, and then find that you're, you've burnt yourself out, you've destroyed close relationships with you, you've sacrificed everything for an external goal. You must learn this process of loving and taking care of and healing and renewing yourself as part of the healing and renewal of the social body. And we are called to incarnate the very essence of those teachings so that the, there's a constant sense that we're opening a spigot, a stream, a flow, and spirit is, is melting into action as that spigot and that flow intensifies, increases, and it raises the level of consciousness everywhere as that flow intensifies spirit and action brought together be the change that you seek in the world. But people aren't just talking about it. They, the transmission seems to have been made. So um, go ahead and, and open it up to another question from the circle here. Dr. Mora, you're live. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Um, my name is Maura Conlon, and I was in Rwanda earlier this year, and I was very interested in what you said there with regards to the collective healing. And while I was there, I was actually brought back to a personal uh, family situation. Uh, my, my uncle was a Catholic priest in Queens, New York, uh, kind of a, a man of the streets. He was an advocate for the homeless and for the the elderly and the disenfranchised, you know, was sort of a, a radical, a, a radicalized liberation theology-oriented priest, and he was murdered in his rectory in uh, 
Jamaica, Queens, New York in 1973, and I was 12. Um, and uh, the, the man who murdered him uh, is, is, is still in prison in upstate New York. Um, and I wrote a memoir a couple years ago that Time Warner published. And in it, that, that murder and how it pierced our family is a part of my story in that we silenced it. We never spoke about it. My father was an FBI agent trained to be quiet and stoic. And so it was a wound that went into the underground. And to this day, all these years later, I wonder if I should contact or try to find a connection with this man who killed my uncle, a priest, in 1973 and try to enter some type of um, reconciliation process. So it's a big question, and maybe it's too big for right now. Um, but I actually feel just honored to share the question with you. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing the question. And uh, that's right, we, we can't answer it all now. but. What I can say to you is this, that I think it's a great idea to make the connection. Don't have to suffocate any of your feelings. See, this is the richness of the truth process, that opening a dialogue this, with this man can tell him just how hurtful it was, how painful it was for your family what happened to your family in the process. And you might want to know from him, what does he feel at this point? What, what has he been going through? Is, has he experienced any remorse? Has he, what does he feel about your family's reaction? And so dialogue has begun in that sense, that you don't need to preempt it by saying, I, I have to reconcile. First of all, I have to see, can this person bear the truth of my experience? And can I now tune into where the truth of his experience is? Maybe something further deepens in his response, or maybe his response is the end. Maybe he's not capable of, of, of that. And maybe it's one of those stories that's just waiting to happen in the universe, where in fact, you give him the opportunity to say things that will, in fact, be healing. Thank you, James, and thank you, Dr. Mara, for sharing that. Um, and I just, James, I'd love to invite you to make any closing comments tonight surrounding peace building and and restorative justice, and, and then I have a few closing take... announcements. Okay. You want to uh, take a few more questions? Or... I'll take one more question, right. Why don't, I, why don't I pull one from the ones that were submitted? Um, there was a good one from Alan Haynes. Um, let me just pull that up here. And it, it, it actually goes back to the Occupy movement a bit. Um, but he, just, he asks, basically, how can the aggrieved victims of unwarranted police force and violence, such as the members of the New York City and Oakland Occupy movement, so actively move forward peaceably and peacefully in their work to advocate for justice and political equanimity? 
hopefully without inviting more violence. And that's from Alan. Um, I'm not sure I got the first part of the question. It was, what was the first sentence? Um, it, w it was, how can the aggrieved victims of unwarranted police force and violence, such as the members of the New York and Oakland Occupy movement, proactively move forward peaceably and peacefully in their work to advocate for justice and political equanimity without inviting more violence? And that's from Alan. Right. Um, well, clearly, uh, the, the, you know, as in the work that Sharif Abdullah does in Portland, and I know that I think he's going to be with Ari Ariadne in uh, your next conversation. They, right. You know, in the work that he does, he he makes sure that there is a dialogic process with the police, and it has, in fact, you know suggested at certain times that members of the community accompany the police in certain places. So, um, so there are ways to try to set the context that says you know, to the police, we are not the enemy. There's a beautiful example of the man in the Occupy Berkeley uh, process who saw, who was getting seeing people getting pushed around and saw the name of a police officer, uh, I guess, on his badge or he was wearing it somewhere. And uh, he saw it was a Latino name and he, he named him out and he said, you know, I, I, I bet you like Mexican food and you know what? Uh, when this is over, I'd really love to sit down. I have a great Mexican restaurant I could take you to. I'd really love to know how you felt about what, what happened here today. And uh, there was a whole change in behavior uh, at that end of the spectrum by that invitation to say, wow, I know you must be processing this intensively also. So creating relational bonds, not starting from the enemy position, knowing that at times the behavior on both sides may be inappropriate. Certainly, I was calling for a Department of Justice investigation into the excessive and inappropriate use of tear gas by the police in these Occupy protests. Uh, because that is, was clearly, in my view, a human rights violation. They, people were being pepper spray, sprayed right in front of their faces. And in that case, you know, all you can do is protect. So, you know, it doesn't always work out ideally. Sometimes, you know, your first responsibility is to make sure that you and whoever is with you is safe and protected to the extent possible. I loved in the Davis example where the president of the college had really called in the police who did the very inappropriate pepper spraying. I loved, I don't know if any of you saw it on TV or YouTube, but thousands of the student body lined up that night outside of the building and all the way to the car of the president so that when the president walked out of the building, 
she was met with absolute silence. I mean, it was chilling silence by the student body communicating to her the, their dis, intense dissatisfaction and disgust, in fact, that she, the president, had done this to, the, to her own student body. And it was a, a brilliant move. And in fact, the president uh, said some very important things after that in terms of the need to investigate the police behavior and so forth. So yes, we are now out of time, I know. And I just want to, again, thank you, Molly, for the opportunity to share on this theme of restorative justice and its relationship to peacemaking and to honor you and this series. And I urge you to take all of these transcripts and uh, publish them in some interesting format uh, because this is a theme that we really need to listen to in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Thank you so much, James. And I'll, I take those words to heart. And in fact, it's already in the hopper. <laughs> um, and I just, I just want to say, um, for those of you who are just getting to know James's work in the world, one of the most powerful opportunities to engage him are the um, five-day intensives that he does that really call on your inner power and essence to rise up, and he spoke so beautifully to the inner, outer aspects of peacemaking throughout tonight. And um, my experience with James is that he helps to set a safe space and a field for for that process to arise very naturally and organically. And I know that some of us on this call have also participated in the intensive. So, if you're interested in more information about his peace healing leadership and creative emergence intensives, please go to his website at jamesod.com. We have intensives coming up in um, Crestone, Colorado, as well as in Portland, Oregon, and also in beautiful Mount Shasta. And of course, Crestone, Colorado is a very high vibration community that models eco-spirituality and um, paves the way for the new paradigm in what it's doing. And, and being. So, um, also don't forget that um, if you're interested in the Peace Ambassador Training Program that James leads, um, they're in the midst of the second series, but there's probably going to be more coming. I don't know that for sure. Um, but you can go to the Shift Network to find out more about that. That's theshiftnetwork.com. And finally, to everybody gathered tonight, remember that I will be posting the, the archives from tonight and sharing it out with you um, in an email. And uh, our, all archives are posted at mollyrowanpresents.com. And finally, finally, I'd like to also say that I confirmed yesterday that um, Yes Magazine editor Sarah Van Gelder will be joining me January 10th as a special bonus round of this series. And I'm very excited about that. So thank you so much, everyone, for being with James tonight and in this very important conversation. And may your holidays be deeply blessed and peaceful. Good night, everyone. <laughs>